In this episode, we're chatting with Philip Mott, reluctant learner turned elementary teacher turned homeschooling father, about how his family uses curiosity as their curriculum. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education, and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in and join us on this next adventure. Hello and welcome to the Raising Wildlings podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Farrell. After graduating high school with a GPA of 2.2 and then shifting often between jobs, Philip Mott pursued higher education at the age of 26 and worked to earn a spot on the Dean's List each semester. But five years of teaching led him to realise the timeline imposed on students was incongruent with the way learning most often happens. His experiences drove him to explore learning methods which honour the learner, the teacher and learning itself. He now unschools his three children with his wife and writes parenting and education advice for families on his website, philipmottwith1l.com. But before we start, we'd like to thank all of you that supported our online store while we were in lockdown a few weeks back. The hidden costs of COVID are considerable for small businesses. It's not just not working on the days we have to close down. It's the refund fees on top of the payment fees we already lose. It's the cost of creating content, ads and marketing events that don't go ahead. It's paying staff the many, many extra hours to reschedule credit and refund our customers and then answer more emails about bookings. We've had five out of the last six holidays affected by either lockdown, floods or dangerous weather. And while we know we are far, far luckier than many around the world and interstate, it has had a huge effect on our bottom line as a business. So having you all support our online shop during lockdown, A, really brings a smile to our faces on some really rough days as small business owners, and B, it helps us to continue to pay our casual staff who can no longer work on on the ground programs during lockdown. So we just wanted to take this little 30 seconds to thank you so much for your support because frankly, without it, we, we just don't know where we'd be. But let's get on with something a little more positive and chat to Philip, shall we? Welcome to the show, Philip. How are you today? I am doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. We've um, we've just had a discussion about it's, it's day, nighttime there and daytime here and lockdown here. How are you going restrictions-wise over there at the moment? We have um, some areas, it's basically kind of privatized where any any store that wants to maintain uh, restrictions, they do. Uh, we're about half vaccinated in the U.S. And so most places people aren't wearing masks. So as, at least where, I, where we live, there's no like local mandates right now. Oh, how lovely. So. We're in the middle of a political poop storm at the moment about a, a lack of vaccinations here. So um, <laughs> I'm glad yeah. I'm not the prime minister here, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've had some decent, we've had some decent changes and, and numbers have dropped significantly, uh, significantly as a response. So it's been encouraging, but it's been a rough 18 months mm, going it, on 18 months now. It really has. It's, um, I saw a memory pop up the other 
day on on Facebook and it was us in lockdown. I was like, gosh, it feels like a decade ago and and yet it's only 18 months, but it's been yeah. only 18 months, particularly a small business. But it has been. Yeah. Let's let's move on to something more positive. <laughs> Do you want to start, Philip, by telling us a little bit of your background and um, I guess how what you were doing and how you've ended up homeschooling? And and take as long as you'd like. We love these stories. Yeah, sure. The so I was a what I call a reluctant learner. <laughs> um I would always start the school year off in, in school, you know, wanting to be organized. I'm going to do better this year. My parents tried different tactics to try to get me to do well, but my mom didn't do well in school. So she didn't feel like she could push. And dad was a real patient and he was, we were a single income family. So I mean, he was just busy working. He was working his full-time job and um, working side jobs as an electrician. And so starting around you know, fifth grade, I really started struggling in school. I had been a great student up until then, but then they started sending us uh, home with homework. <laughs> and I, I was great at getting all my stuff done during the day. And so then I would just lose it or I didn't want to do it. I would just not complete it. And that pattern continued all the way through high school. Uh, so I barely graduated high school on time. I did graduate. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much vowed when I graduated that I'd never go back to school again. And I did end up taking some college courses. I did not get into the university that I wanted to get into because I really wanted to study architecture. Um, but most of through high school and um, I just I hated school and um, it just wasn't part of my value system. And then I had a big life change in my mid twenties, getting married, kind of had a rediscovery of my childhood faith and kind of discovered this, this renewed purpose in my life. And so I felt like I needed to really do something that I thought was maybe more significant. So then I had become like sort of this insatiable learner. I started reading all the time and which I had never read. I I rarely completed even short reading assignments in school. I never finished a book as an adult. Um, I never read magazines, the news, anything like that. Um, I listened to music and I watched movies, which that's how I got all my information. And then I, I went back to school and I did really well. And I discovered that I really loved to learn. Mm-hmm. And, and so then uh, I went back to school to become a teacher. So, so I was going to save these kids from themselves, right? <laughs> I was going to be the charming teacher that they needed instead of being like the teachers that I had growing mm-hmm. up, like many of the teachers I had. I don't want to lump all of them together. I'm, there, there were some good ones. And so that was kind of the beginning. And then I, I turned into all my least favorite teachers. I was mm-hmm. yelling at kids and giving out, giving out homework and being real critical. And I was like, this is not, this isn't me. This isn't what I wanted to do. And so I continued reading and developing and started picking up books about student engagement and uh, student psychology, all this different stuff. And I started to recognize uh William Glasser was actually the big voice, mm-hmm. kind of a turning point voice for me. Uh, he talked th- when he wrote, when I read his book, it was like someone 
explain to me why I disliked school for the first time in my life. Oh, wow. It made it so clear to me when before I just couldn't put my finger on it. So it was like this, that became the framework that I started looking at things. Um, and then of course, as I got deeper into it, I just, it opened me up to new ideas and I could not support, you know, the system as it was anymore. Mm. It was just so damaging to kids and not just kids relationship with learning itself, but, kids' relationships with their teachers, with themselves, and with their parents. I mean, it just, it's like the way that we practice teaching, um, especially in the States and where I grew up, is it just drives a wedge between all of the most important things in a child's life. Yes. And we we think we're doing it for their own good, but it's actually causing a lot of harm. And... uh so the tail end of that story is then I had my kids and we started having kids and we knew we wanted to do something different. We weren't really sure what, um, we were, we were pretty sure that we were going to be kind of like those strict disciplinarian parents. <laughs> and then we, and then we discovered uh, self-directed learning. So William Glasser was kind of the one that helped me understand my own experiences, but Self-directed learning, uh, and specifically like John Holt and uh, Sir Ken Robinson, uh, Janet Lansbury. I don't know if you're familiar with Magda Gerber. Yes. Um, she was uh, very influential. She was the reason I actually found Janet's work. Oh, nice. And um, so we understood why our experiences were so bad. Janet and though that cohort of people helped us understand the, our own infant's perspective. Mm. So our only child was 13 months at the time. And we started doing all this self-directed stuff where he could guide his own activities. And we were amazed at what he was capable of. And, and so then we were hooked. We were like, okay, well we have to, we have to do this, whatever this is, we have to do <laughs> it all the time. <laughs> What did you hate about school? What was it that you railed and fought against that you just couldn't stand about it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's so many things. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what's hilarious too, the amount of people that hated it but we end up going back to teach as well? I know, yeah, yeah. But like, is it like you said to come and, and fix the problems that we think we saw with it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And there's this story in our culture and I would think that your culture is similar, mm. uh, English speaking culture that, that a, a person uh, can go in and save a system. You know, that's, yeah. those are all the stories that we grow up with, you know, the sort of that lone wolf mentality where you highlight the hero, but going back to your question, if I borrowed William Glasser's explanation of why I hated school. It was the, it was the thread of control that was woven through every interaction I had with adults. Mm -hmm. And no matter what I did, it wasn't, it wasn't good enough. And even if it was good enough, it was, there was like this underhanded compliment, like, Oh, I'm surprised you could do that that well. 
not in those exact words, but it's like their, their disposition to you. I can remember, um, one of my teachers, they saw me, they saw that I had, uh, dressed up for a winter dance that we had. And, um, you know, he said the typical adult thing is like, Oh, you clean up nicely. (laughs) And it's like, it's like this underhanded comment. It's like, normally you look like a bum, but now you're acceptable. It's like, that's really not as nice of a thing as you think it is. No, you could have just said, <laughs> you look really great tonight. You look handsome. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, it is that authoritarianism, isn't it? I'm um, I'm non-confrontational by nature and don't love conflict. And I just found myself as a teacher having to use every tool in my kit to manipulate, to bribe, to you know, to get children to do these things that they didn't want to do. And I felt I was so coercive all the time. And there was this hierarchy that even in our senior year, year 12 here, when they, some of these children were more intelligent than me or knew more about a specific subject or book that we were teaching, and yet I still had to show that there was this hierarchy to get them to do the work. I hated it. I hated the inauthenticity of it. Yeah. <laughs> so then. Um, you homeschool now. How did that happen, Philip? That's right. Yeah, so I was uh, visiting my brother, and we had been looking. So my brother lives up in Minnesota, up north, uh, several hours from us, and they were just they had just had a baby. So I went to visit them and just kind of help them out for a week. And we had uh, two kids at that point, and we had been looking for kind of like a preschool, like daycare for our oldest to give a try. And and we couldn't find, we were into the self-directed, so we couldn't find anything that wasn't like trying to sell academic progress. <laughs> we just, we just wanted a place where he could go and be with other people and like play mm. and just like interact with other people. Not because we were worried about him being socialized or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's nice to have a break and, um, And so we were looking for that and we couldn't find it. And so my wife did a little bit more of the research uh, this time. And she came across a documentary called uh, Class Dismissed. Well, I haven't seen it. And yeah, it's, and it follows a few families who kind of explore homeschooling and self-directed learning to different extents. That's where we learned about, um, kind of got introduced to, I think Peter Gray was featured in there. So she watches this documentary on her own. She calls me up one night and says, we're homeschoolers now. (laughs) And I was like, oh, really? (laughs) She had never wanted to homeschool. Mm. I had always been interested in it because my mom did it with my older siblings for a few years. Mm. And I was homeschooled for like six months before I went into kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And she was always like, like totally opposed to it, but she started to see how it could be done differently with a self-directed mindset. Mm -hmm. And then this video kind of like tipped the scales where it's like, all right, we're going to at least do this for a few years. And uh, so that's kind of, that's how we got our start. And I do most of the reading about schooling and education and parenting. She's definitely more of the default caretaker. And then we, and we just talk all the time about the kinds of relationships we want with our kids and 
we talk about unraveling all the all of our different biases around what kids are truly capable of, which is really great. Can you tell us then a bit more about what you do for work? And I'm, and I'm going to caveat that with as well. A, a lot of questions we get from uh, parents that are looking to homeschooling, one of their biggest questions is how do you manage finances? So if you could talk a little bit more about in your household, if that's okay, how you create an income while someone is obviously at home to a point. Yeah, and we both, I mean, we both work in the home. And so we're both working, but you were privileged to be able to be at home, which for us, I think makes it easier. Mm. I don't know that, I don't know that all families could do that, not just financially, but they just have different dynamics where for one reason or another, it wouldn't work out very well. Mm. Um, I know one of my uh, closer self-directed friends, she works full-time and her husband works full-time, but they work separate shifts and they homeschool. And so one of them has the, during the day and one of them has in the evening, it's really an all hands on deck in terms of we're being really intentional about this, especially lately is I'm trying to make sure that if something needs to be done or could be done, I just step in and do it. And then we have very low expectations on ourselves in terms of how much we can actually do outside of the home, how many we don't put a lot of extra time into trying to do very many experiences partially to save money, but then it just, it creates a lot of extra work. And so we kind of, we sacrifice a lot in terms of getting together with other people and we just stay home a lot, cook meals here mm -hmm. and try to keep things somewhat simple. Mm -hmm. that, I think that's kind of my shortest answer. Yeah. I like, I think People think homeschooling can be really complicated, but I think at its essence, for it to work really well, it needs to be simple. It needs to be not stressful because those dynamics, like you said, they don't work if, if the people that are run, not running the house, because that's the exact opposite of the word that I want to use there. But, you know, yeah. as parents, if, if we're going to set the tone for the house, if we are trying to fit too many experiences in or, or do too much, it filters down and it does. It causes the, that friction within the house. Yeah, we try to really see it as a partnership um, with our kids where it's it's their education, it's their life as well. They care as much about their life as we care about ours. They just don't have the language for it, but they want to survive and thrive just like we do. And they are going to learn and pursue the things that they see are valued in our culture. And this comes a lot from the writing of Peter Gray, inspired a lot by his writing. There are others who are talking about it too, but he calls it the tools of the culture, that whatever they see the culture using, they are going to be drawn to as well because they see that it has value. If I tell them that books are valuable, but I'm never reading books and they never see other people reading books. There's mixed messages there, uh, but they can tell that things like entertainment and, you know, stories and dinners and like all that stuff is valuable to do. They can tell walking is valuable. So that was something that even as, even with our babies, we didn't try to get them to walk faster than they were inclined to do on their own because, 
They didn't need to. You weren't ready yet. Yeah, they weren't ready. Mm-hmm. And you said you were familiar with Magda Gerber. Her She was famous for saying readiness is when they do it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We'll go back to what you do for work, but I'm just going to skip forward here. And because we seem to be touching on it quite a bit about self-directed education and about curiosity as a curriculum. That's exactly how we run our lives here as well. But I'd love to hear you speak more on that. Yeah. So that phrase or that uh, sentence came from the fact that people were asking us when they found out that we homeschooled, they were asking us what curriculum we use. (laughs) If I had a dollar. (laughs) Yeah. And we weren't using anything. Mm. And so we didn't really know what to say. And eventually I, I said, well, it's really their curiosity. They learn the same way you and I do. If they want to learn about small engines, then we help them learn about small engines. If they want to learn about Shakespeare, then we help them learn about Shakespeare. And um, so that's where that idea really came from. And it's really been one of our main mantras and it's it's something that helps us bring back bring us back to center when we start to get like oh well maybe we need to expose them to this or maybe we need to try this um it serves as a a reminder that we need to remember to at least pause and trust their curiosity for a time and knowing that eventually that they are likely to find their way to many of the things that we think they should find their way to. Yeah. I'd love to know what are your children curious about at the moment and and are there any ways that you've been able to um, foster that curiosity? Yeah. The main thing I'm concerned about is squelching the curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> um, <'cause> <laughs> <laughs> I'd hate to see them more curious right now. <laughs> It does get like that, doesn't it? I can't possibly fit that in our day. Or I'm not sure that we can go to such and such today, right now, today. Despite I, w- I would love right. to be able to <laughs> to enable that for you, but it's it's in Western Australia, you know, <laughs> a five hour flight away. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So just recently, um, we discovered Pokemon, mm. and. Um, it, my wife and I both really like to play board games and card games. And um, I we thought that they would like this one, so we introduced it to them. And the oldest kind of took on to it first, and he plays little matches by himself with the cards, and then I we just introduced them to the show too. So right now it's, it's a lot of Pokemon, um, but, you know, Lego, mm-hmm. dinosaurs. Nice. Um, coloring you know, really just like so it's so typical stuff um but they get really into it i just heard my son reading which i don't get to hear him read very often and he's reading the stuff on the pokemon cards mm-hmm. and we never taught him how to read and he's been reading for a little while but it's just like one of those things where i know it can happen and mm. i know it does happen but with all the focus and education on we need to teach kids how to read, I'm like, but he's reading. I never, like, except for showing them, like, the letter sounds and stuff, we never talked about 
we never went through any sort of like curriculum of like, this is how to read. But you nailed it it. before when you said, if you show the children the tools that are important, then they'll want to do it. And, And they're intrinsically motivated then, aren't they? Because so much of society, our society in the Western, well, most you know, civilizations is is based on, on literacy now. So it is a tool that children want because it opens access and the doors to, to the bigger world for them. Absolutely. We're on the Harry Potter train, as I mentioned before, and my eldest is we've ne- we've not touched it. And as an English teacher, it was very hard for me to not touch it <laughs> until now. But um, he's the eldest is, I think, on the maybe the sixth book. But our youngest, who is not reading yet, um, is suddenly wanting to do reading eggs, is wanting to do flashcards, which makes me want to vomit personally. <laughs> it's not how I wanted to teach him. But it's, it, again, self-directed. If he wants that and that's what he's finding attractive, then, you know, we did that for a couple of weeks. But he's learning. He's now very motivated to read because he wants to be where his brother is at. We found that the motivator. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's beautiful to watch. It's amazing how much we keep siblings separate in schools yes. when siblings are really like drawn to each other. Yeah. I think that's incredibly important and it's one of the reasons when we were looking at daycare centers, the love that our two had or still have for each other, I couldn't bear the thought of separating the two at daycare yet. They were such good friends as I can hear one crying now. <laughs> The irony that I'm probably going to have to pause on that moment. <laughs> but it is. <laughs> the social skills that they get from each other and the motivation and, and the, um, you know, they're, they're thick as thieves. And I think it's really undervalued in Western society now and yet in other cultures the family unit is kept so strong. And I think that's really important. Let's backtrack a bit here. And, and can you tell us about your work? Have you purposely headed into your work or was this something that you've fallen into? And yeah, I didn't make it very clear. I was being uh, unintentionally cryptic before. Uh, I work in the solar industry and I Mm. work with a company that does solar for schools. Uh, So I do the programming, educational programming uh, for them. The work that I really want to be doing is what you and I are doing and that is not income. It's all on the side. And uh, I've got some some free writing gigs that I do and just trying to ramp some of that up because I just, I want something more. I really believe in the mission and the vision of the company that I'm with, but it's still, it's still focused in the school. You know, I really believe more on the, the energy independence that we want to give schools um, by installing solar. And so I really believe in that. And I believe that it's important for schools to show to the students that not only do we talk about sustainability in our curriculum, but we also have put, you know, resources and allocated space for that. Of course, that's a change that needs to happen, you know, nationwide from my perspective there. The schools shouldn't really have to be like doing this on their own the government should just be putting resources into that, uh, into that infrastructure. But that's a whole nother conversation and I am not qualified to have it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny you said that though, because exactly that when we preach about sustainability and the environment in our curriculum, and yet the last school, when I left it may have changed now, 
that I worked at um, didn't even have simple recycling other than paper for teachers, but the children's bottles and cans and plastics all went into landfill. And yet we were teaching about sustainability and preaching it and talking about recycling. It wasn't there in front of them. So the hypocrisy, I think, is is rank at times within what's what's taught in the curriculum and then what's actually happening. And the kids are not empowered to no. to take ownership of that process. It's you know, especially in the states. I don't know about uh, in Australia, but the you know the kids sometimes they might be shamed in the hallway for like walking by some litter or things like that, but they're not actually brought into Mm. the process of what does it mean to keep a building clean? And that's something that I believe in. Now that doesn't mean we have these complicated chore lists and you get punishments if you don't do your chores and all this stuff like that. But we can bring kids into that process where everyone is a janitor. Everyone is a teacher uh, everyone is a student, you know, the, from my perspective, the, we misunderstand and misconstrue the learning timeline. And we think that school is only for academic learning. And we think that, that learning only happens there, that the most important learning happens there, but learning how to mop a floor, to, um, pick up trash, to change out trash cans, to clean up a sink, the kinds of things that kids are totally capable of doing, those are learning experiences too. And those are just some examples, but you're helping to prepare food. And Can you speak more on that about um, teamwork and authority with your child and, and how respect is earned? Yeah. So, my kids are not, as much as I want them to be, they are not born respecting me. Like respect is this social construct uh, that we have and we think that we deserve it, um, but they are fully human and respect is something that we have to earn from them. And I, I almost pause when I say respect is earned because it sounds like I'm saying like they have to earn my respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, even when I was saying that, I was like, oh, that's not what I mean, but it is what I mean. So, <laughs> yeah, it sounds it sounds almost like oppressive. Yeah, um, but no, it, it's really positioning ourselves and saying I have to position myself in a way that I earn your respect. Mm-hmm. I have to be respectable before I can expect to be respected by my kids. So when I say, when I talk about respect, that's what I, I refer to a lot. And it's, I think a lot of it comes down to just making sure that I'm truthful and not like sugarcoating things. Mm. Is that a phrase where you're at? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have to remember when I'm talking internationally, like, is that a thing for them? I don't yeah, know if it is. I get caught out too <laughs> with that Aussie lingo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we try to be very straightforward, but very careful to not to check our own agendas. Mm, so if <laughs> the cla- the classic example is, what do you do if your kid is going to run out in the middle of the street? It's like, well, I would stop them, but if the street was blank, if there were no cars 
and they did run out. You know, I would I wouldn't chase after them and punish them for crossing the street. I would be frank with them and say, "Look, sometimes there are cars going on the street and they may not have time to stop. So you mm-hmm. could get hit, uh you could get badly injured and you could even lose your life." Some people may feel like, "Well, that's too big for a young child to understand." Okay. Not at all. But they I would much rather them fear the car than fear me. Ugh. Like that's yeah. That's where I want if they're going to be afraid of anything. Not that I want them to be af- afraid of cars even. Uh, but to have this respect for you know what's possible on the road. Um and if I feel like I feel like if I punish them and they don't experience any consequences on the road, then they they can fear me. And that's mm-hmm. the wrong thing that I want. So that's a lot of the spirit of like how I think about ways that I can, re- that I can earn their respect and mm. earn their trust. I think you're right with that. Um, it's, it's not just the truthfulness. It's the, it's, it's, it's explaining it's, it's, you know, you can say I, I feel frightened or whatnot, but then it's, I feel frightened because you walked out onto the street and this is the consequences, possible consequences if that happened. But it's the consistency too in making sure if you do stuff up as parents, and we do, that we apologise. And I, I still see so many parents struggle to apologise to their children and I think that sets us up on this pedestal where there is a very long way to fall because there are times when we're tired and we're grumpy and we can't handle anymore and things come out of our mouths that are not truthful or or um, a hypocritical or a not fair and my children are very good at picking me up on, mm-hmm. on fairness they have such a strong sense of justice but they're very quick to forgive if if I apologize and not excuse my behavior but but apologize for my behavior yeah sometimes my kids have actually thrown had a bigger meltdown when I apologized mm. um, than when I actually did the thing I don't pretend to understand what that's about yet. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're not experts. We're learning and, and just trying to share things that we're learning, but they're, they're individuals and, you know, there's, there may be something in our voice. There may be something that they, that whenever they say, sorry, it triggers another memory or something. I have no idea, but sometimes if we bring up the fact that we made a mistake later, um, they can get really upset. Or if we talk about their emotions, uh, and my oldest in particular, if we talk about his emotions um, after the fact, sometimes he'll get right back into it. It'll almost like mm. re-traumatize. Oh, wow. And, um, and I want to be careful too when I even, uh, I was listening to a book that talked about how um, – the son resented his father because the father had written about his war experiences in order mm. to further his own career. Mm. And it's, it's sticking with me lately. Cause I don't, I don't want to use, I don't want to leverage my relationship with them and put their experiences out there as a way to sort of further my career. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to have a deep respect for that privacy and, uh, and that kind of goes back to the respect is earned. Maybe I have his respect until the age of eleven, and then he, and then he has time to look on social media and, and decides to stalk me a little bit. And it's like, Dad, you were talking about me a lot 
mm-hmm. when I was little. I don't really care for that. Yeah. Like that was my, like, that's not fair to me. You didn't get my permission to tell these stories about me. Mm. So sometimes I have to check myself even there and kind of think, you know, how much do I really have the right to volunteer about him? Cause yeah. he's not my child. He's a child. Oh, that's, sorry. That's I'm going to pause you there and put a footnote there on that one. Cause that was beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, Oh, it's you, that's making me squirm in my seat. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here acknowledging my body going, oh, because this is something that Vicky and myself have grappled with as well. And we've both had, to us as adults, very frank conversations, but with our nine years mm-hmm. and under children who don't have an idea of the potential consequences of having their stories and their, their education and whatnot being publicised out in the world. So... Yeah, it's it does. It makes me think, and we've done we've had the same conversations about photography as well, and taking photos and being used. But we don't have the answers, and at the moment we're still doing it. But the potential for future problems and problems within our relationship does make me squirm. So I need to go and have another chat with my under nine year old because, like you said, he he is he's his child. He's his own person. Yeah. Funny how I'm not even talking about the youngest one yet. There's the difference in age even of comprehension and um, ability to vocalise their feelings. So, yeah, thank you for making me think about what we're doing too. <laughs> it's good. This is it's why we sobering. do it. And, uh, you know, I have, I have the right to share some of my experiences, but when those start to rub against, you know, their lives – the the chances of them being offended by something I am saying I think are pretty slim, mm, same. but there is a chance. So, I mean, I I try to talk, I I love my kids, so I talk you know real positively about them. And, mm. uh, but then, but then I'm also can be very frank about myself, and you know, who knows? Maybe they would read that one day and think, "Gosh, Dad, why do you like?" Why do you hate on yourself so much? Mm. Like you're a good dad. Like you were a good dad. Why, mm. why did you beat yourself up so much? And, you know, I, I won't have an answer, but I'll thank <laughs> them for making me think about it. <laughs> uh, and I think for me, I think the thing that gives me the biggest pause is, um, and I think it was, oh, I can't remember which book, Siblings, uh, Sibling Rivalry. Who wrote that? I can't think. Oh, yeah, Siblings Without Rivalry. Um, Joanne, oh, it'll come to me. I'll pop it in the show notes. But about labelling your yeah, child. Yeah, Faber, uh, Faber yes, and Maslish. Faber, thank you. Well done. And, yeah, la- about talking about labelling your child and for them to listen back and hear how we've perhaps labelled them as, you know, really interested in Lego or really interested in such and such and that he's acquired a child or and them thinking, well, that that's not me. It's not me at all, but it's preserving mm-hmm. history and time through our eyes and, and not through their own perception as well when, again, it's their story to tell, not ours. So thank you for the reminder. <laughs> oh, thank you for listening. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, I love doing this podcast because I learn something from everyone, every person I chat to, and it's always through being frank and being honest and being vulnerable. So thank you for your vulnerability too. <laughs> Let's finish off with um, 
disadvantages of the education system and advantages of homeschooling. Yeah. I've got a friend that's just literally this week gone to unschooling, taken their child out of a Steiner. Hi, you know who you are, friend. (laughs) And I think it would be really great for them and other people to hear about particularly perhaps a disadvantage of the education system. I think one of the big disadvantage, biggest disadvantages that I've come across is that it changes their relationship with learning itself. Mm, yes. So they start to equate learning with pain and people don't like pain <laughs> and, and learning can be painful, but that doesn't mean it should be normal and, and that it's, that it should be acceptable. I think people, too many adults accept this idea, this belief that school is just painful and you just have to deal with it. And, um, you know, some of the best learning is not painful. That doesn't mean it's always pain-free. So I think that is one of the biggest negatives. I think that's the most consistent thing that I've seen across uh, across research studies and um, and personal experiences, that it's all about the relationship that kids have with their learning, and where homeschoolers and uh, specifically self directed advocates and what I call unschoolers are well positioned to do, although you know we don't do it perfectly by any means, is we. Kids love to learn, and they're learning all the time, as John Holt would say. Um, so we kind of put a – we protect that relationship by not forcing it. Like pe- some teachers ask online, like, how do you make kids love learning? And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> you know, kids love learning. Yeah, they do. Like, stop, stop getting in their way. And they will continue to love learning. It's what is happening is we keep getting in their way and we keep saying, yeah, you're learning, but you need to learn in this way. We need to shape it. Or learn about this instead of what you want to learn about. Yeah. That's what I think kids are rebelling against is this, this constant feel of like, I have to do it a certain way Mm. and they just want to try things. You know, I was making some notes before we chat in some of your communication, you talked about like, how would we think of this as like a one Oh one? Like how would we sort of think of it as like an introduction to your topic? And I think it's, it's trying to shift that perspective of instead of thinking, I need to get my kids to experience certain things. I'm focusing on opening my eyes and opening myself to what they are already experiencing. So it's less instruction and more observation. And there is no observing in schools unless you consider like the teacher walking around cross arm like this. <laughs> Getting children you know, off their are. Yeah. <laughs> that's policing. Yeah. Um, that's not observing. A you know, there is no time that I'm aware of where teachers are encouraged to just watch what the kids are doing and capture what they think is valuable from that. And the teacher may be wrong, by the way, 
<laughs> there are probably things that my kids are learning that I think, oh yeah, that's valuable. That's what they're learning. And I could be completely off. Um, but that has, when we're talking about how do I, how do I start homeschooling? Like get to know your kid, spend time observing them. And, and instead of thinking, what should they be doing? Start asking yourself, what are they doing? Mm. What are they really getting out of this? If they're watching uh, movies, if they're playing video games, if they're playing board games, if they're sitting and staring at the wall, instead of judging that and saying, I don't see the value in this, can I pause for a moment and think, what value do they see in it? Mm. I think you've hit the nail on the head with why I hate our we have to report here for our homeschooling and we have to show progress. And it's such an arbitrary tick box because A, what is progress? And I'm exactly that. I'm writing down what I think my child is learning and what I think they're progressing in. When when I ask them, I'm really doing it to make sure I'm getting through and I'm getting approval for the next year. I'm, I know they're learning completely yeah. different things and complete, completely amazing things that will never ever be in a curriculum tick box but I just do it and I get it done and I let them enjoy themselves but it's not about again it's not actually about the child it's about a system yeah exactly Mm, infuriating (laughs) (laughs) so let's move on to our rapid fire questions what is your favorite book of all time and why or because I know that's hard what are you currently reading Yeah. So the favorite book that I would consider on topic, this is kind of what I'm currently reading, Mm -hmm. um, is Play and and Development, which is Mm -hmm. edited by Artin Gonku and Suzanne Gaskins. I haven't heard of that one. It's an academic. I think it was uh, published in 2012. Mm -hmm. I started reading her because she was the first um, person that I came across that defined self-directed learning in a na- or not self-directed learning, child-centered learning in a negative light. Ooh. And, Ooh, could you um, expand on that, please? Yes, I will. I thought you might want to know. <laughs> My ears pricked up. <laughs> yeah, because child-centered is often considered like the progressive way to do it. Um, but child-centered learning, and she spent a, she's an anthropologist, so she spent a lot of her time studying different cultures. And so what they found is what we think of child-centered learning is actually like do everything is centered on getting the child to develop to into a certain kind of person. And th- these are things that we wouldn't do if children weren't present. <laughs> and it was a really kind of interesting definition of like, I, I really had to think about what I was doing with my kids and why. And I realized how often I was doing something just for their benefit. I wasn't doing it because I also wanted to do it or needed to do it. Mm-hmm. And so within that definition, there's this assumption that I, I am done developing and now it's their turn. Yeah. Um, oh, that's good. So she encourages us to say we're developing alongside our children, uh, mm-hmm. not uh, not just developing them. 
uh, right now, my yeah, that favorite book all time. I think one of the most recent and most powerful books that I reference a lot is Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. That's been on my bookshelf for about a year and I still haven't got to it. So I'm going to pop it on there. It is wonderful. I, um, I listened to the audio version, which was a really great experience. Uh, and then I bought the volume one of his illustrated sapiens, ah. which is fantastic. Very, mm. very cool. So I read through that. I haven't, I've listened to Sapiens twice, but I have not, I bought the paperback and I have not actually read it yet, but I've listened to it twice and it was, it's been one of the most influential books for me in the last, uh, three or four years. Wow. All right. I'm going to put it into my shortlist pile. I've got, I've got the bookshelf and then the (laughs) the bedside table pile. Right. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see how I go. Yeah. Let me know how that goes. Yeah, I will. I will because I'm, I'm sure there'll be. It, I love those books that just just explode, and, and like you said, then lead you down another path of oh gosh, I need, I must learn about this now. <laughs> All yeah. right, where do you go? Or what do you do to reset after a rough day? A lot of times, uh, we try to just like we go. I take the kids out and we go shoot hoops in the driveway. And, uh, that seems to be a great reset because not everyone has to do it, but everyone, everyone normally wants to be there. Mm. You know, I open up the back of my car, they sit and play in the car. I shoot hoops. One of them rolls a ball down a hill so it can hit the (laughs) fence. And we're just out there together enjoying being close to each other, but it's not like an activity in the sense of we're all doing it. We're just all with each other. It normally gives my wife a break too, because it's right after dinner and she kind of hangs out after dinner a little bit. And I take everybody out because they always want to go. And uh, yeah, it's, it's nice. Just being present, isn't it? And like you said, they're not all having to play. They're all doing their own thing, but they're in each other's company. That's really nice. Yeah. If you had to choose just one thing to change about the education system, just one, what would it be? Oh, I've probably written about this before. (laughs) And might I add, Philip's done some great, I've been trolling through your articles as well. So there's some beautiful articles on his website, philipmott.com. So please do go check those out. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the shout out. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's, that's like picking a favorite book, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) What's one thing? I mean, one of the, I think one of the easiest things, um, I would say that it could have some of the most profound effect uh, would be, I want to say it's divided between two um, is either free age mixing where you have multiple grade levels together mm-hmm. where, you know, there's peer tutoring, all the, all this different uh, options open up either that or uh, a completely eliminate letter and number grades. So no evaluations of children's work of any kind. I think that would just about immediately, immediately inspire children to keep learning then because then there's no end, you know, they're not trying to achieve or, or be compared against their peers and their friends and it's purely, you know, you want to learn how to get children to want to learn again. It's to make it about the learning and not the end result at the end. Yeah. Mm. And there would be other cascading things that happen. It's like, well, 
if I don't not getting a grade for it, then why do it? Mm. It's like, yeah, well, that's a great point. If they're, you're not being evaluated, you should only do things that you want to do then. And so mm. you're basically self-directed at that point. Boom. I love it. <laughs> All right. And the great last question. Yeah, yeah, oh, I love that. It's probably my favorite question in the whole podcast because everyone has a variety of answers, but they all inevitably almost come back to self-directed learning. They all come back to giving children back their autonomy or, or more choice for teachers to allow more autonomy or, you know, to follow the child's interests. It, it's there. It's how we how we do that in a school system and get budgets for it and, and whatnot. But that's, yeah, we'll see. All right. And last question, uh, we've just added this one, is what would you say is your, if, if you have one, a, a soul space or a space that a space or a person that had the most influence on you as a child? Oh, that's an interesting question. Mm. Um, what space or a person? Mm. Uh, probably my basketball card collection. Mm, I love that. Ex- please expand. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I discovered this like, analytical like statistic heavy part of myself you know uh i would spend hours just pouring over my basketball collect card collection looking up the speculative values and uh and or and i used my mom's typewriter to make handmade like dividers for the different players and all kinds of stuff like that and i showed it to my mom last year and she was like I had no idea you did all this. No way. Like uh, she, did, she could not remember. She remembered that I collected cards, but she did not. She could not remember that I bought like protective sleeves to like put the cards in. That I put them in a divider and that I organized them alphabetically by player and and that I would you know sit in my room and study the statistics on the backs of the cards and stuff. Um, so as an adult, I've looked back on that experience and kind of realized, oh, I was showing some of my interests back then. I didn't, and I didn't really realize it. I wish mm-hmm. I had, I wish I had had someone in my life that was saying that had observed me and said, you know what, you seem to really have this analytical side to you. I think mm-hmm. you should do more of that. I think mm. you should look for more ways to be analytical, but instead that part of me was ignored. And, and then I was just, you know, shamed by most of the adults in my life of like, you're just not trying, you're just not applying yourself. Mm. And of course my internalized response was, why would I apply myself? <laughs> the stuff that you're giving me is horribly boring. <laughs> Just that you know the amount of learning in collecting, like you said, you you know you're alphabetizing the the stats and the co- collation of the stats and the comparison of the stats and the analyzing of those. There is so much yeah. learning in that, and so intrinsically motivated. And like you said, to have someone point that out to you is such a simple thing. But again, it's that boom. There's a there's a whole other world opened up to you. Then I just think if. If, and and probably and I'm assuming here, so please correct me if I'm wrong, that there was probably a, a piece in you doing that in in the meditative process of doing that as well. So that I don't know whether it became a sort of refuge, but so many people find peace in their in the skills that they really enjoy, but those skills are quite often not found or easily attained within a school system. There's a lot of assumptions in there. Please, please take over right. from that. <laughs> 
Absolutely. I think absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to mention a little aside to that, that it's, it wasn't just the handling of the cards and organizing that I would have my friends over and we'd compare cards every once in a while we would trade cards, you know, open new packs together. That was pretty exciting, <laughs> but there was, there was an exercise component too. We lived in a rural area. So to get cards, like we learned about time management, about, um, restaurants and ordering food and, we rode, um, we rode our bikes miles and miles to go to card shops. Um, I think one of our longest rides was, uh, 24 miles. We rode 24 miles to a card (laughs) shop and then rode back home. And it took us like, I don't know, two and a half hours, something like Mm. that. It was a long way. That's a long way. And, um, I spent, you know, basically it was like three summers doing that with a, a few of my neighborhood friends and we'd get home. And then of course we played a lot of neighborhood basketball too. Mm. Yeah. To be, to have the ability to pursue your hobby. I, imagine if that was enabled within our schools to just pursue as simple as that, pursue your interests and, and your loves, how different our mental health and anxiety levels within our schools would be, I believe. Oh, totally. And it's not like it's not being done either. Um, mm. You know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the Sudbury and the democratic schools. You know, there are schools that are being run cooperatively with the kids and the students, they help pick their teachers. They help decide which teachers stay on. They see themselves as, you know, colleagues of their teachers Mm -hmm. and they decide what classes they want offered. They decide if they want to join a class um, those are some really powerful statements that those schools are making with the way that they've structured things. Mm, I'm so jealous. We we have to follow a curriculum here. Any school that we don't have charter schools, essentially, we have independent schools, but they still have to follow the curriculum. So we it's very hard to do that <laughs> as self-directed learners because the curriculum is so dry. It's so dry. <laughs> Yeah, I have hope. I have hope. Maybe not in our generation or my children's, but I I think I do feel the revolution is coming. I think schools aren't working for so many children because because of the internet. The internet is here and we can learn so much and we can learn it at our fingertips. So why are children interested in what's being taught by a teacher that they don't get along with and don't have a healthy relationship with when they can access anything they want at their fingertips? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, next question. What one piece of advice would you offer new parents coming through? At the end of the day, you're dealing with a person. And so everything that can help or hurt an adult relationship will also impact your relationship with your children. Mm. And that's something that I... I still struggle with, you know, we talked a little bit about, I think kind of unraveling biases and, and unlearning conditioning that we learn in school. And that's a lot of it is that we don't see kids as people. We see them practically as property mm. or maybe pets Oof. <laughs> and that they're, that they're there to kind of perform for us. Um, mm. So, a new parent, I would just say it's, this is a person you will lose your patience, but everything that 
can actually help you build that relationship. You already know how to do that with your best friends in life. Mm. And so, you know, use that as a reminder to, to help you stop and question yourself of like, is this going to help my relationship with my child or is this going to hurt? Because that's at the end of the day, that's what I want. That's, I want a, a peaceful and I want a loving, joyful relationship uh, because there's a lot of behaviors that just don't get you there. You can get all the great behaviors and, and not have the connection. Yeah. And, and probably one of the biggest ones is, you know, I, I would never be in a relationship where I felt controlled. And yet as parents, it's probably our go-to, go-to response is control. Precisely. Mm. Absolutely. Philip, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like I've met a, a kindred spirit in your, in your family from across the ditch. So again, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, where can we find out more about your work, Philip? If people want to get more accustomed to acclimated with my writing, they can, the main place I drive people to is uh, my Twitter handle at Philip Mott one uh, or my website is where you can find some of my writing, philipmott.com. So philipmott.com, Philip's with one L. He's got some fantastic articles there on parenting uh, and self-directed learning and unschooling. And, yeah, I just want to say thank you for putting that information out there and hopefully it can be shared far and wide and we can encourage more people to look out for ways that we can respect our children as much as we like to be respected. You are welcome, Nikki, and thank you for... Uh, having me on and much luck to you and Vicky on this uh, podcast you've been working on. Can't wait to check out more interviews. Thanks, Philip. I know we sometimes complain about the effects of technology on our society sometimes, but after episodes like this one, I can only rave about the benefits. I mean, honestly, how amazing is it that we can connect over the internet and talk to someone so like-minded over on the other side of the world? It it just still blows my mind. Some of my own big aha moments were hearing Philip talk about the damage schools can do to relationships with their teachers, their parents, and especially themselves, that curiosity is the best curriculum. And I see that over and over again with my own children. Today, for example, um, my youngest who has just been watching and watching and not wanting to join in on chess just suddenly decided to play chess and absolutely kicked my butt on the first round I swear he's just been sitting there absorbing and you know learning through osmosis and just refused to play until he thought he could win I also loved hearing about how chatting to children about natural consequences uh, will help them fear the consequence or the risk rather than fearing you as a parent. I thought that was really powerful. And how we as parents really need to earn our children's respect through honesty and consistency, not the other way around. I just love this part of my job. It fills my cup no end. And if you would like to learn more about homeschooling or unschooling, you'll be pleased to know that we have finally put together a free printable that lists all of our favorite books, websites, blogs, everything all about homeschooling and unschooling in one place. Uh, We get a lot of emails from our listeners, um, you know, saying, I love your podcast. I'm really interested to learn more about homeschooling. Where can I find out more? So 
This is our answer for you. So you can find that and download it at wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash free dash downloadables. And please do let us know if there's anyone or any other resource you think we should add to it because this was just a really quick brainstorm. We know we've missed a lot, but what we'll do is we'll compile a list of the most frequently recommended um, people, blogs, etc. So until next week, we hope you enjoy that. We hope you learn something about homeschooling or unschooling or self-directed learning. And until then, stay wild. Thank you.